Today's episode is brought to you by the blue suit. In a world full of stuff, what do we choose to hold on to? Created by award-winning poet Shinyi Pai, the blue suit is a podcast about commonplace objects and the people who transform them into something remarkable. From a Chinese-English dictionary passed from father to son, to an old caliphone playing records left behind by Japanese-Americans incarcerated during World War II, the blue suit showcases modern-day artifacts of Asian America and re-examines what gets elevated to heirloom status. Start listening by searching for the blue suit wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is also brought to you by Talia Lakshmi Kuluri's What We Fed to the Manticore, a debut collection of nine stories, all narrated from animal perspectives, which explore themes of environmentalism, conservation, identity, belonging, loss, and family, with resounding heart and deep tenderness. Says Claire Comstocke, What We Fed to the Manticore is a work of incredible imagination and daring asking us to recognize the inner lives of whales, donkeys, and pigeons to be as complex and deep as our own. The stories in this collection are gorgeously written and richly emotionally textured. In Talia Lakshmi Kaluri's hands, the familiar world we live in comes freshly to life. Adds Amy Nezukumatatil, Kaluri delivers a dazzling, daring, bestiary, brimming over with textured, tender lives, a most magnificent debut. What We Fed to the Manticore is out on September 6th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. There are some writers I've interviewed that as time has passed have become much bigger, more well-known writers. Very early in my book interviewing life, back when the show was under 30 minutes and I was still getting my sea legs, I talked with Roxane Gay, with Colson Whitehead, and my first ever interview was with Anthony Doerr. When people say with incredulity, your first interview was with Anthony Doerr, and ask if I were nervous, they don't fully realize that these authors weren't household names then. They weren't so well-known that your mom might be reading them, that you might find them in the airport bookstore, that really I was nervous because it was my first interview, not because of the stature of who I was interviewing. I bring this up because, well, of course, this is impossible to predict. I nevertheless feel like today's guest, Morgan Talty, who is here for his debut story collection, is going to be one of those people one of those people where I'll be looking back in 10 years and pinching myself that I interviewed him back then, that we are catching a remarkable writer really early in a likely remarkable trajectory. Either way, whether I'm the next Nostradamus or not, I'm really excited to play my small part in bringing his first book into the world, Night of the Living Res. Near the end of this conversation, we talk about blood quantum in relation to questions of belonging and native identity. What does it mean to belong in relation to this colonial racialized construct of blood quantum is one of the animating questions of Morgan's next book, his first novel. And because we talk about this, 
for the bonus audio, he chose to read for us an essay, an essay he describes as being at the far end of creative nonfiction, almost fiction, one called The Citizen Question, We the People. This joins an ever-growing archive of supplementary bonus audio. Even just considering some of the contributions by past indigenous writers who contributed, the archive includes Natalie Diaz reading Borges' Book of Imaginary Beings, Laylee Longsoldier reading a poem written since her iconic collection, Whereas, Jake Skeets reading and analyzing Lucy Tapahanzo's poem, Hills Brothers Coffee, Therese Marie Myatt reading her essay, Native Women Brilliance, Alyssa Washuda reading from an essay, Apocalypse Pathology, and Brandon Hobson reading a recent short story of his, A Man Came to Visit Us, to name just a few. And the bonus audio is just one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community of listener supporters. Every listener gets an email with each episode, sharing the most noteworthy things I discovered in preparing for the show, the best talks or videos or pieces of writing by the guest outside of the main book discussed, links to things we reference during the conversation, and places to explore after you're done listening. And there are a ton of other things. The Tin House featured new release, the Ursula K. Le Guin tribute anthology, Dispatches from Anaris, collectibles donated by past guests and now offered to you. And you can check it all out and much more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's program with Morgan Talty. Stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Morgan Talty, is a citizen of the Penobscot Indian Nation, received his BA in Native American Studies from Dartmouth College, and his MFA in Fiction from Stone Coast's Low Residency Program at the University of Southern Maine, where he's now himself on faculty, as well as recently accepting a position on the faculty of the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. Talty teaches both English and Native American studies, is the prose editor at the Massachusetts Review, and his own stories have appeared everywhere from Granta to Shenandoah, been cited in Best American Short Stories 2020 and 2021, 
have won the 2021 Maine Literary Awards in short fiction, have garnered him the 2021 Narrative Prize, and the 2022 National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship in Prose. Talti's here today to talk about his debut story collection, Night of the Living Res, out now from Tin House, not only one of the most anticipated debuts of the year, but truly one of the most anticipated books of the year. On all of the most anticipated and best books of the summer lists, you can imagine from the New York Times to Time Magazine, Book Riot to the Boston Globe, with starred reviews from Kirkus and Publishers Weekly. Rick Bass declares, I am not predicting literary success for Morgan Talty. I am guaranteeing it. A fascinating, powerful, and singular writer. Jim Shepard adds, Morgan Talty is a master of the way dependency and pain transition from one body to another, the way both separating and refusing to separate become modes of saving ourselves, and the way for all of our failures, we never stop doing what we can to provide each other hope. Passed between the covers guest, Therese Marie Myatt adds, Night of the Living Res is true storytelling. It's a book so funny, so real, so spirited and vivid, it brought me back to my own res life and the people who made me. And finally, Tommy Orange says, These stories took me in the same way Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son did when I first read it. The comparison here is meant in every way to praise Talty as a writer, and I'm sure I won't be the only one who says so, partially because of his emotional precision, his stark, unflinching, droll, intoxicating style, and also because of a certain drug addiction element at play here. But as I got deeper into the work, into the book, and came to understand these lives and this community, the further away it felt from my initial comparison with Johnson, and the more familiar it felt, our Native communities being bound by countless common threads, strengths, and afflictions both, and only then did I understand the distinct brilliance of Talti's voice as its own, and ours. I knew and felt for these people, wanted to, and knew I couldn't help them, even as they did me. There's so much brutal, raw, and beautiful power in these stories. I kept wanting to read and know more about these people's lives, how they ended up, where they ended up, how they would get out, how they wouldn't. It is difficult to be so honest and funny and sad at once in any kind of work. Reading this book, I literally laughed and cried. Welcome to Between the Covers, Morgan Talty. Thank you, David, for having me. So I just have to say that over the last year, whenever your name would come up at Tin House, regardless of which editor it was or whether it was a book designer or a publicist, their eyes would just light up. And there was so much palpable love and enthusiasm for this collection that I found myself coming to it with an unusual amount of anticipation, which isn't always a good thing for, as a reader, I think, um, to have such high expectations and the desire that comes with those expectations. But really, your your book blew me away. And I just I wanted to start with a congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I always 
I've been doing readings and, and talking with so many people and, you know, I tell them all they're you know, I'm like, people read, they're like, oh, there's all these, you know, good reviews of the book. And I always, there's this lovely one on Amazon that just says disappointing. So I always read that <laughs> to everybody just so I can have a nice balanced, good. everyone has an objective viewpoint here. <laughs> well, in, in the spirit of you saying you've been talking to a lot of people, when I, when I looked at your tour and event schedule, my jaw literally dropped. The only thing I could compare it to is when George Saunders's uh, 10th of December came out. And right when that book came out, at a time when he was a, a writer's writer, a beloved writer's writer, but definitely not a household name. And then the New York Times Magazine ran this cover story w with the article, anybody would have died to have written about them, uh, with the title, George Saunders has written the best book you'll read this year. And he came stumbling into the radio studio in the whirlwind of the aftermath of that article. And he said to me that he just decided that for that year, he was going to say yes to everything to like fully ride the wave of what was going on. And I looked at your schedule and went, oh my God, in a similar way. But, I, but I've also heard you say that you, you sometimes are teaching seven classes at the same time. So maybe this isn't exceptional for you. So how are you, how are you holding up so far? Um, as this book comes out, but also as you sort of go out with this book. I'm holding up. All right. I had my first leg of my first book tour last week. Um, the week the book came out, July 5th, I did an event at a Portland Public Library, which was held at a brewery, had a great turnout. Um, I was in conversation with Gregory Brown, the author of The Lowering Days. And then I did an event, um, the Bangor Public Library, and then... Last Sunday, I flew out to Brooklyn, did two events there, and then did two events in um, Massachusetts. And then I came home Saturday and yesterday, I was just relaxing and I, I could feel the, uh, the uh, tiredness build up a little I bit, bet. the exhaustion. And, but I, I'm still looking forward to all of, the, all of the events. And I mean, more have piled up, you know, <laughs> outside of that, you know, what's, what Tin House has already publicized. But I've been enjoying it. And I mean, it's, I don't think my course load in the fall will be seven classes. I think it'll be fewer <laughs> because I am going to, as Saunders said, ride this wave of book stuff. And it's just been fantastic to meet with booksellers and, and readers and writers and young writers. You know, I met young writers at um, undergraduate students at the Center for Fiction. And I was like, you need to email me because like, I just love talking with writers. I love working with writers. And it's sort of like, you know, the business side of writing can be, I think, tiring and very sort of like anti-artistic in a way, but I feel like I'm trying to make this as artistic as I can, you know, and, and to fuel like my desire to keep writing for the sake of writing, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I've been following you on the virtual part of your book tour, which I've really enjoyed. And in particular, and I think most deeply, I enjoyed your conversations with the Osage writer, Chelsea T. Hicks. Uh, the author of A Calm and Normal Heart, um, partly because you share some animating questions in both of your books, but you make different choices and explore these differences together in your conversations. But also because the way you talk together was just distinctly different than with the other conversations you've had, often with non-native interviewers like me. But I wanted to start first with how you've been engaging with this book and in relation to the unspecified general public at large. For one, 
you said it was important for you not to perform indigeneity on the page, not to dance for uh, the colonial gaze, as you've said. Um, and I suspect part of the pushback you do in these interviews when asked if these are Penobscot stories or if these stories reflect Penobscot life, when you say that, no, these are human stories, humans who happen to be Penobscot, that they don't represent the tribe, that perhaps this is connected to not wanting to be performative. Um, when you were talking about this with a news station in Maine, you frame it around the notion of David Troyer's, of what he called exoticized foreknowledge, and that it isn't uncommon that people who are praising your book are falling into the trope of exoticized foreknowledge in the way that they're praising it. So I would love to start here, to, if you could talk to us about exoticized foreknowledge or what it means for you and how this intersects, if it does, with the ways you do and don't want to render characters who are Penobscot on the page in your collection. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Um, like, I don't think about who my audience is when, when I'm writing, per se. I mean, I, I do and I don't. I think that's a burden minority writers have. They, they, you know, they don't have the luxury of just being like, I can write, you know, whatever. But um, to have whoever I want I have to think about my audience. Um, and yeah, sure, certain genres with certain, certain formulas, obviously writers think about who their readership is. But I feel like right now there's a, an overwhelming urge from readers, I think, who want to read diverse literature. And I feel like for a very long time, major publishing, you know, major advertising has tricked people into believing what they want to read based off of this idea of exoticized foreknowledge in a sense. Like, you know, we all carry certain things we think are true about, you know, an, another culture. And that sells, right? That, that sells when we don't challenge, challenge that notion. And, you know, I'm, I'm reminded a little bit now of um, that really famous Ted talk, um, the danger of the single story by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And, you know, you know, she had talked about um, going to Mexico, I believe. And, but before she had gone, she, everything that was on the news was about illegal immigration and all this stuff and poverty and everything. And, and she was so stunned when she got into Mexico, like when she got off the plane and she saw that people were like smoking, going to work, you know, just living, like being human beings. And she was like, basically I had fallen into the trap of thinking that these people had this single story, you know, and she felt deeply ashamed. And, it, you know, it's something I think we all experience. And so for me, you know, writing this book, I was like, I want to focus on these characters as human beings, right? Like, I don't want to put culture first. And, you know, I feel like throughout the book, I don't want to make, I don't want to make a bet, but I, I don't feel like there are any moments in the book where like culture comes before their humanity and doing so allows or disallows the reader from being able to position it that way. But there are still readers who will say, oh, this is representative of Penobscot people. This is, you know, representative of, you know, Penobscot culture. And that, I think, says more about how we read rather than how a book is written. Um, I, I mean, I've said it over and over again, and you even pointed it out, you know, like this is a book just about people who happen to be Penobscot. 
anybody can experience, you know, these types of the types of addiction and the type of trauma that appears here. And there's obviously colonialism that's, you know, has affected these people in a particular way. We, we you know, we cannot not think about that. I, I was curious about the term, so I went looking to to where Troyer talks about it, and it's in his book Native American Fiction, a, a user's manual where he talks about an assignment he gave to students in his Native American fiction class, where he has them read a story by Sherman Alexie in which a character is described as shedding, quote-unquote, Indian tears. And he asks his students what might Indian tears signify, and then he recounts his students' responses with sort of an ironic amazement, and he characterizes what his students found in the story as the legendary mist of Indian misery. And then he asks, how does one escape this all-pervading thing, exoticized foreknowledge? I want to use this question as a lens into your work further, including not only the role of symbols in writing, but also working against the notion of of Native peoples as symbols. Um, But before we step in that direction, Using exoticized foreknowledge as a lens, I wanted to at least in passing bring up that you have in one story a white film crew filming, and Chelsea T. Hicks has an outsider film crew in her collection, and there's also this motif of lenses within Tommy Orange's book as well. And I guess, I know you say that you don't think about audience but I wonder about these gestures as connected in some way across your books that maybe they are animated by similar concerns or anxieties or um, inquiries, thinking about the lens versus the gaze. Um, and I wonder if that sparked any thoughts for you about either this this notion of, of symbol and foreknowledge or this notion of who's reading your work or how you want your work to be seen. I think the notion of like, you know, the film crews and, and all of that stuff. Um, Cause I, interestingly enough, I wrote that story in the living res in 2015. So that was way before there, there came out. That was way before, um, you know, Hicks, Chelsea's book came out um, a common normal heart. So, and the film crew was actually in the original story. So like it had been on my mind, you know, a lot about this idea of like indigenous people being, almost like caricatures on, on a television and being symbols of something long gone, right? You know, this imperialistic nostalgia that, you know, non-natives may feel, right? So I feel like it was there subconsciously. And when I wrote, you know, I think I tried to nurture it as best I could without breaking the stories and turning it more into social commentary, you know, staying true, more true to what I consider to be like the principles of fiction. Um, and, you know, when it comes to symbol, you know, for example, like when I, whenever I see a symbol start developing in a story, I just run the other way mm-hmm. because I'm so like, I feel like if, if we feed into that symbol from, from a writer, from a writing standpoint, I think we begin to miss an opportunity to get to metaphor and then an opportunity to ultimately get to a transcendental moment. Um, the story, I don't want to say becomes one dimensional because a story that's full of symbols can surely be transcendental, but I think it's just very hard to get there. And so at the film crew and, you know, this idea of visuality, you know, it came down not to, it came down to the scene and it also came down to language usage. 
you know, I, you know, the end of night of the living res is a story the the story version, you know, it's almost like, um, a curtain coming down the way, the way it's described, at least, at least in my, at least how I visualized it. So it was like being very conscious not to overpack the symbol because I think it would have ruined it. I think it would have been like, it would have robbed the story, at least that moment of the emotion. It would have, it would have took the focus away from the characters and that, and that tragedy that occurs. Mm. Well, this phrase Indian tears that Troyer uh, brings up, that is supposed to be sort of a shorthand for what we think we already know about native American suffering. It makes me think of the ways you've spoken toward wanting the book to be accessible and universal about, about the human condition for instance, that the addiction you portray, as you've said, is something anyone who knows someone struggling with addiction can relate to versus it being a commentary specifically on, on Penobscot life, for instance. But I feel like you do this in a way that is very different than the shorthand, which itself may also be motivated toward trying for broad appeal. The shorthand, I wonder if that even also comes from a desire to be accessible and universal. But what's interesting to me in reading your book is, um, versus hearing you talk about it, is is the book is very place based. All of it is taking place on or near uh, Indian Island, the Penobscot Reservation on Indian Island in Maine. But it's also really attentive to the particulars of the life of these characters, um, who, as you say, happen to be Penobscot. But there are many, many details in the book that arise. Um, very particularly from place and landscape, but also from language and culture and inter- intergenerational trauma that seem very specific to who these people are. Uh, that the power of the book, even perhaps the way it finds universality or or, or maybe what, what you're calling transcendence, is not in reaching towards universality, but rather from staying very close to the specific yeah, I think there's that, I don't know who said it, or even if it is a saying, I keep always using it all the time, but it's like no ideas, but in, but in things or something like that. Um, you know, it's, specificity is like so important to fiction writing, um, you know, being, you know, finding the correct details and, and using them in a way, using them in a way that they would exist in the real world, right? You know, if we think of the Indian tears thing, it's like, yes, it's a literal thing, but it's it's no different than just saying tears right like like there's a con- there's a connotation with it that the reader will make you can give that line a lot of criticism you can also i think not criticize it in a, in a particular way being like oh well maybe this is you know another way of going about evoking like you said that universality right is it good is it bad i, I don't know i'm i think there are better ways to create emotion and so for me you know it was always like I'm just going to stay in the literal and use that as a vehicle to get to the abstract. And, and, and thinking about it, I feel like he does that, but, but it's just the way he uses, he used language there that I think I compare it to like a cheat code. He kind of put like a little cheat code in to get to, you know, this emote, like evincing this, this emotion. And, um, but, but it is true. It's like so many non-native readers have like, just these weird expectations about what, you know, fiction by indigenous writers might teach them. When I was at Dartmouth college studying, I was in, uh, I took a, I think it was my senior year. And there was, I 
for another course. I just took this native, it was an introduction to native literature course and I'd already taken a, a bunch of them and it was with um, Professor Melanie Benson Taylor. And uh, she always asks at the beginning, you know, and it's a, it's, it's a survey course. So there's, you know, about 50, 60 students in it. And she asks everybody, she's like, uh, so tell us, you know, where you're from, what you're studying and why you took this course. And this one, this one kid, he goes, he's like, yeah, I, uh, I took this course because um, I'm like really interested in arrowheads. <laughs> and everyone was just kind of like, what the, like, what you, uh, and yeah. And then she's like, OK, thank you. And then we went to the next person and like, mm. but those are the type of answers you'd get. And it's like we're, we're reading Louise Erdrich. We're, le- we're reading Stephen Graham Jones. It's like none of them are going to give you a history on arrowheads. You know what I mean? Like people expect some type of like insight into being native with these books and like I think that's true that there is an insight right there's a specific you know any book you pick you pick up that is written by another person there is an insight right you know this but but I feel like it comes through this shared empathy that we have for being human and and that we're able to you know connect and dealing with that you know, universality is, is, you know, a hard, a hard thing. And like, I thought about readership throughout the entire time I was writing the book, you know, but not when I was writing, you know, I'm like, when I'm revising and drafting, I'm like, all right, am I making any of this stuff performative? Like, am I making any of this stuff do the things that I am completely against? And I worry at times, you know, I'm like, did I, you know, or do I, and, and, you know, maybe, you know, five, 10 years from now, I'll look back and be like, I learned my lesson not to do that, you know, <laughs> not to write in that way. So, right. well, in the spirit of how much you attend to the particulars and the specifics, not to tour us or, or to satisfy curiosity, but to sort of orient us to the material of this book, could you, could you talk a little bit about Indian Island as a, as the place setting of this book and then introduce us to to David who uh who lives there. Yeah, so the book is set on the Penobscot Indian Nation which is in real life I I think it's like a 3 by 2 mile island that sits in the middle of the Penobscot uh river and it's where I grew up you know, ran through the woods and, you know, all this stuff, all the stuff you see David doing as a boy in the book, um, being outside, you know, that's what my friends and I used to do in the book. It's, it's pretty much the same, same place. I think I, I expanded the place a little bit and added places that don't exist just for safeguards for future works, you know, in case I wanted to, you know, keep building this, this place. So the book set there and the book, you know, focuses on, um, David and it's told first person and we meet David at two points in his life we meet him as a child and we meet him as an adult who goes by D and then the stories alternate so there'll be a story told by D there'll be a story told by David story told by D story told by David and they're all short stories that are intended to stand alone and 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 have uh, that you know I think almost all of them have been published as as short stories they're all connected in that way that they share the same narrator um, and character. But by the time you get to like the third or the fourth story, there's this question that sort of emerges, you know, like what happened, you know, cause you start, you realize D is David and, you know, because David is such sort of like a really good natured boy and 
um he's like as good as a boy can be you know and a child can be and d is just the complete opposite you're like how did this happen um and so it's really a story about you know david and his family his mom uh his stepdad frick his sister Paige, um his his grammy his friends uh jp and tyson um in, in the in the david stories and then Felis and his mom beth um in the d narratives and it's it's really just sort of like a sort of like this legacy of this character's life really you know and and you know by the final final story you know it, it's it's david looking back like way back you know so many years have gone by and he tells us one final story so um it is you know it's 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 d and david all the way through and um it's it's just an attempt you know i think the synopsis on the book jacket leaves out this line but at the top of the line anywhere on the top of the synopsis anywhere else it says how do the living come back to life and you know like that's really at the heart of this book is like how do people who are suffering and struggling to live come back to life in order to overcome those difficulties mm. that's really well said well it's interesting as a writer it's interesting hearing about how Originally, you just had David's stories. They were all organized chronologically, and you felt like the book was not very good. And that stumbling upon a character named D, and then later realizing that D could be, and then ultimately becomes an older David, and then this this jumping back and forth and in between the younger and the older David really added something to the book. And I, I wondered about your thoughts about about that because given that we're talking about the mysteries of of say finding the universal within the specific um i also think about this gap between time periods that we keep leaping back and forth across and wonder if this is the place for the reader within that absence because this is where we ask as you suggested how did d the older version of david how did he become this way and it's 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 interesting how I think like the non-written in a way feels like it becomes the engine to want to keep reading, if that makes sense, that we leap over this unspoken part of his life over and over again. Um, but the the part that's not spoken feels like it it somehow is the thing that pulls us from one story to the next. So so for me, you know, I've always my approach to the short story is that you know, the short story really, I, I have no, I cannot remember who said this, some terrible names, but the short story draws its power from what's left out, you know, and I think in the same way poetry does, right? If we look at the spectrum of art, if such a thing exists, you know, you have the novel, the novella, you know, the short story, the prose poem, and then you, but, you know, keep going and keep going. And, and it's like, everything gets more trimmed as, as we go this way and everything gets even more crucial to get right. And, so for me, writing these stories, it was always like, okay, what can I not say, but the reader still knows is being said in some way and it's affecting, you know, the piece, you know, like it's never said what happened, you know, what happened to this poor boy, but we, we see it there by its absence, um, which I find fascinating, you know, and also a very difficult thing to do. And, you know, I think I got super lucky and like, just listening to the story and being like, okay, I think this is where it wants to go. Mm. And then it being like, Oh no, I don't want to go there. And I'm like, well, I'll start over then, you know, and, and keep, and keep trying. But there's a lot of power in not saying something on the page. Um, I don't mean that when it comes to like, 
speaking out against something but i just mean like in in general like there's there is a, a very unique power in just letting something be and maybe not explaining it and sometimes not even saying something um you know i think it just creates it forces the reader to think it forces the reader to not just you know get sucked up in the story and you know and hinge on every word and you know it's it's like watching tv you know tv everything is just you filtered through you know you're not really thinking per se and there's books like that that i love right everybody loves to read books like that too but with this i was like i need to make one i need to write something that readers are going to be okay i'm reading this but i have to meet the author halfway Mm -hmm. um and because i love books that make me work too too. you know i I, and i always trust the i always trust that the reader's smarter than i am (laughs) So I feel like I have to like be on my game all the time to try to get it to where I want it to be. So we have a question for you from Rick Bass in Montana. Um, but he, the audio he sent me, it sounds a little bit like he's uh, entering, re-entering the atmosphere on the space shuttle. So I uh, played with it a little bit to try to enhance his voice. But um, he still sounds a little like he's in a freight elevator in this. But, um, <laughs> but this, is, this is sort of a question slash benediction from from rick hi morgan this is rick bass calling from montana so excited about your book your story is getting the acclaim that they are due um congratulations i have been thinking about a question uh, that i would ask you and, and i think what comes to mind is is the uh, the prevalence of smoke in in your stories we uh we visited about it a bit at Stone Coast, and I was thinking about it this morning. What I like about smoke appearing in your stories is that it metamorphoses. It becomes uh, something other than symbol. Um, it would be a really easy symbol for it to be, uh, you know, just the usual stuff, uh, ephemeral, uh, fleeting, ineffable, Etc. Uh, you know, an abstraction, a, a transition, transitory veil between two worlds. Blah 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 blah. And the more I think about how many different ways and different times you use smoke, uh, I like that. I like how you use the opposite of the thing. Sometimes it's it's nurturing, not debilitating. It's strengthening, not uh, or it's it's illuminating, not obscuring. And uh, yeah, it's fun to watch. Um, I think uh, what lies ahead for you is, is tremendous. Uh, just from that that uh, observation there, that you don't ever let yourself get boxed in and repeat a thing. Uh, if you do repeat it, you make it be different, which is therefore not repeating. Not much of a question, just uh, comment, observation. If you have any thoughts, I'd love to hear it. Uh, keep rocking on with your bad self. Congratulations. Thank you, Rick, for the those kind, kind words and the comments on the smoking and, and everything. It, Rick, Rick's just phenomenal. I just love Rick. You know, he's so sweet, so kind. His work is brilliant. Um, as for thoughts on the smoke, it's funny, is you know, because he had mentioned, you know, when we were at Stone Coast, we worked we worked together. He was my mentor for for two semesters, and the, when we were talking about the collection, he was like. Um, he was like, yeah, for the collection, he was like, I would cut out some of the smoking because 
um, you know, he's like, it's fine to have it in one or two stories, but it'll become, you know, like he said, this thing that's repetitive and monotonous and just sort of the same thing. And to hear him say now that it's not that makes me feel good because I did a lot of work, you know, I, you know, I listened to him and like, why wouldn't I listen to Rick Bass? And, um, and I remember revising and I was like, okay, because smoking, like growing up for me, it was just always there. You know, my mother had a cigarette lit. My sister had a cigarette lit. My dad had a cigarette lit. People were falling asleep with cigarettes. You know, I'm driving in the car. Someone dropped their cigarette. And <laughs> one time I was in the back seat of a car and someone flicked their cigarette out the window and it came back in through the other window, went in my <laughs> shirt and I like couldn't get it out. You know, like cigarettes have just been a huge part of my life. So like they made their way into the story into the story is just because everybody was smoking. You know, my friends and I would spend three hours figuring out how we were going to get, you know, steal a cigarette from my mom or somebody else's mom, you know, or dad. And um, so they, they, they were just subconsciously had to be there. Like, you know, they had to be there, but then I understood Rick's point, you know, being like, okay, it's, you know, everybody's smoking, right. How do we make this different? And, you know, like I remember going through and looking for places like, okay, I can cut that. I can cut that. But then looking for places where I can go beyond, you know, the smoking, you know, this, this activity as just being an activity, you know, I think of the, the blessing tobacco, for example, there's that extended period where David is thinking after his gram, his Grammy hands him a cigarette and he's thinking about how he should smoke. And he, he's like, should I smoke like Paige who does it this way? Should I smoke like Frick who does it this way? Should I do it? Should I smoke like mom who does it this way? So like, I really tried to look for opportunities like that to have the action of something so common, you know, define them. It's interesting is the way people smoke cigarettes is like, there's a lot of similarities the way people smoke, but there's also like this uniqueness to the way people do it. I met with a friend. um, I read at the Franklin park reading series in Brooklyn on, um, I don't know when it was um, last week. And um, I met up, I met up with a friend who I went to school with at, at Dartmouth college. And, um, I saw, I saw her smoking and, uh, or we went out and she had a cigarette and I instantly was brought back to Dartmouth. I was like, Oh my God. I was like, she still smokes the exact same way she smoked there before. <laughs> so I think it's like, I'm so glad Rick asked that question because I think this extends even beyond smoking. I think it, you know, talks about just the the everyday actions that people do like there's this uniqueness that people put onto things the way they drink coffee the way they may hold their mug you know the way they may hold their glasses the way they may hold their vape you know like you know all all sorts of different things um and i think as a writer it's so important to to look beyond the easy way out right like okay how do i find you know the right angle to present this at so it's not just a monotonous repetitive thing but really is characteristic of this person yeah and also he mentions that you don't make the smoke the smoke in the air symbolic and i want to return to you saying that whenever something seems to develop into a symbol you 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 run the other way because some of the things that happen in the collection feel like they could take on the symbolic meaning of allegory for instance the opening story burn where the character Fellas is so drunk that he falls asleep outside and his hair becomes frozen to the ground and the only way to free him the only way he can be free is to have his hair cut off 
uh, that seems to invite meaning making. But at the same time, you seem in the way that you particularize everything, just like you said about everyone smoking different or how they hold the coffee cup, the way you particularize everything and the very matter of fact, everyday way that things are delivered to us seems to be working against the impulse to take that event as symbolic rather than something that that happened. But there feels like there's this tension in a good way between the desire to make some sort of symbolic meaning out of that event and yet sort of like the mode in which you're writing seems to suggest don't do it. Yeah, I think, I mean, like I like symbol. I think it it has its place. It has its opportunities in writing. But I think symbolism one of the biggest, you know, cons with symbolism is that it simplifies complexion. I'm just defaulting to an example where, you know, an English teacher asks the class, oh, what does this blue couch mean, right? Like, why, why is the couch blue? And then you ask the writer why it's blue. And he's like, oh, it's, it's just blue. You know what I mean? Um, you know, the great Gatsby, the green light, you know, across, across the way, you know, that symbol, you know, what I like about that one is that everybody's still fighting about what it means. So like, there's a good example of symbol, I think, going beyond simplification and somehow creating a sense of complexity in the work. But I think a lot of developing writers and, you know, writers who are, have their first books out, their seconds, their third, we have to watch out for just taking something complex and just symbolizing it because it just puts it in a little package and there's like, you can't talk about it any more than it just being representative of, you know, depression or colonization, you know, in that specific moment, you want it to extend beyond that one sentence where the symbol begins. Like you want it to permeate throughout. Um, at least that's my approach to it. Well, there, there's another thing I'm, I'm curious about perhaps is in relation to Rick's thoughts on smoke. And that was what felt like a recurring theme of, of rotting, I would say. There, there's someone who hides out in a no longer used sweat lodge that smells of garbage. And there's the mass die off of caterpillars that cover the streets. That There's the rotting porcupine, but most notably the rotting turtle that has crawled under the house to die. The smell of which I think practically becomes a character in one of the stories or at least becomes the atmosphere and the engine of a story uh, in a really remarkable way. And I find myself wanting to read things into this about nature, about our relationship to the non-human. Um, but I don't think the story is telling me to do this. Um, but I, but it does raise the question about the repetition that I see through these stories. If there's something that's attracting you to rotting, I guess, or or to the employment of of this sort of overpowering non-human smells. Um, that I mean, it, another thing I would just think around it also is just um, it's a it's a sense that you use really well um, smell in your in your fiction. So I think my answer to your question might be a bit disappointing. Um, <laughs> Of the five senses, because, you know, we're always, you know, writers are always told, you got to employ the five senses. You got to employ the five senses. Of the five senses, smell is the one that I forget the most. Like, I, I'll, I'll write a full draft and then I'll be like, no, there's no smells in here. 
So I, I feel like I become hypersensitive to that fact that I've, that I've sort of like in revision, but then also in first drafts, I'm like, all right, I got to throw some smells in here. Right. <laughs> and for some reason, some reason, my sick mind is like, all right, what smells really bad? You know, like let's, let's, yeah. you know, put it up, you know, you know, you know, dial it up as, as much as I can. But um, yeah, I think this idea of rotting and, and decaying and, I, I, I find fascinating in and of itself, just as, as an idea, because I mean, everything rots, everything decays over, over time. Right. You know, I mean, just, just everything does and, and will, and um, I don't know. I just, I just find it, I just find it fascinating, you know, how do how do we, you know, deal with rot and deal with decay in, Ultimately, I mean, that is also related to, to death in and of itself, right? Like, how do we deal with the loss of this thing that was once beautiful, but is no longer, quote unquote, beautiful, right? But can we find the beauty in, you know, this, this rotting thing? Well, there's a character in the book who, who I would imagine that a non-Native reader would most want to be a certain way. Um, Frick, the the medicine man, or or as Chelsea Hicks calls him, the problematic medicine man. Um, David's growing up with his mother, and Frick is his mother's boyfriend, and he's not some stoic man dressed in full regalia and imbued with wild supernatural importance, as we might see on any number of TV shows or movies. He's drinking wine out of a box in his baggy pants. And in one story, he trips as he begins to do a ritual and the sage keeps going out and he has to continually relight it. On the other hand, it is very ordinary and everyday and he seems very human. And yet it isn't clear how much he remembers or actually knows in the first place, I think. I guess I want to you, to hear a little bit about Frick as a character from you, um, surely you you must be aware of of the ways people might want to position him in a particular way when you're writing this medicine man or problematic medicine man character. Yeah, so I think to his character dimension, there is like that trope element, I think, or that stereotypical. Oh, there's a you know an alcoholic native guy who's a medicine man, you know, and. But the fact of the matter is, is that's like a true thing, you know, you know, when I first started writing these stories and I'll go all the way back to, to Rick Bass, you know, cause he had read, he had read these stories. He was one of the first few to read these stories, you know, a long time ago. And he was like, man, Frick's going to make a great, you know, antagonist. And I had never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was only until he said that, then I started to see Frick as like, I could see readers being like oh i expect him to be this villain and and in many ways he is but in many ways i think many all of the characters are villains and 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 you know heroes and in certain to certain degrees so with frick i was like i was conscious of that like i didn't want to like make him purely evil um and 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 he's not i mean Mm -hmm. he does some bad stuff but um and some unforgivable things i i think um but to me, he's this guy who is just, I think, suffering terribly from his past. And he he's the way he is because of what's happened to him, right? And then he's sort of like tries to do good and 
can't do good and it, it, it's hard yeah he he was a, a, just a fun character to work with and to see you know like his temperament you know to see his attitudes um to see how he would step up when you think he wouldn't step up to see how he would do something terrible <laughs> when you would think he would never do something in in that manner um but but yeah my relationship with him is I feel like the same with, with the others, it's like finding that balance of, you know, making them more, making them more than just that, that what people are comfortable with, with seeing. And I think with Frick, he, 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 out of all of the characters is the one that's the most, I think, familiar, I think in in a sense, but there's also a very, something also very unfamiliar about him too, that I tried to aim for your own mom actually had a boyfriend who was a medicine man. And like David, you grew up on Indian Island, among many other small details that connect the fiction and the nonfiction. But you're really clear that these stories are, in fact, fiction, ultimately. And I can see why this might come up a lot in interviews, because of how attentive you are to detail and place and mood, the stories just simply feel true. And by that, I don't mean factual but true in some deeper way to a lived experience. Um, how, how would you speak to the relationship for you between your fictional stories in this way to your own life, especially given that you've written some really great nonfiction pieces about both your parents, for instance? Um, were these stories always obviously to be fictional in your mind? And, and maybe also speak to why. Why, why do you gra- did you gravitate towards them as fictions? I mean, there's so many things from, you know, my own life that are not in this book. And to write about any of those as fiction, people would have been like, well, that didn't happen. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, But it's true. A lot of people, there is this really this, you know, this feeling of truth in it. I would just, I I visited um, between Brooklyn and, and Massachusetts for my, for my book tour. I stopped in Connecticut, which is where I was born. And I lived there until I was six. Um, and I and I visited my sister, who I hadn't seen since I think my mom's funeral last year in July. And I hadn't been to Connecticut in ten years. And so I went and saw my aunt. And uh, you know, they were all curious. You know, they were all they all loved it. They read the book. And my aunt says to me, she goes, she goes, I just have to ask. She's like, Are you on methadone? <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, No, no, I'm not. On, I'm not on methadone. Um, yeah. And it was so sweet, sweet and funny. But um, but yeah, with with the book, you know, there the the David, I'll speak first to the D stories with 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 the element of d- addiction, with the element of, you know, lying, stealing, all of that stuff. Like those those types of things I've I just sort of like have a relationship to growing up, you know, seeing that type of stuff. Um, so it was very easy for me to work with. Um you know, some of the other, you know, there are, I mean, I did research for the book too, you know, with Earth Speak, for example, there's a D, you know, goes for a period of time without his, without his methadone. And I had to really look up, you know, like what, how long it takes for, you know, withdrawal to kick in and stuff. So like, there's obviously stuff in here that's all fictional, you know, Earth Speak is purely fictional, um, except for the opening image with the, fog hovering above the trees that was like an image I had written down when I was I wasn't driving but somebody else was and I told him to write it down um but 
the David stories, I feel like, are a bit more closer to, like, I don't want to say nonfiction because there's there's stories in there that just did not happen. But I wrote those when I was just a young writer. Um, you know, like I said, I wrote Night of the Living Res in 2015. That was seven years ago. Mm-hmm. That was the first story I wrote for this collection. And so, you know, young writers tend to gravitate toward what they know, what what they're, you know, who they knew, who they know, and they change the names and stuff like that. So the, the David stories are kind of like in that realm of me being a young writer. And D stories, I was also a young writer, but I was much more, I had matured a lot more when I started writing those. Um, the interesting thing was with this story collection is because it's not a novel, it's interconnected. And I worked on the stories at all various stages. You know, they, I didn't write them in chronological order. So I hadn't, I, I had no real allegiance to any type of like personal arc of my life, right? Like I just was able to dip in and out of things that could have happened. And, you know, I, I divert to a couple things, you know, you know, burn, for example, like the native guy who got his hair frozen in the snow is a story that I'd heard. <laughs> From, from from somebody telling me that this guy got his hair frozen in the snow and I turned that into a piece of fiction and um, sa- uh, Safe Harbor, for example, was is pretty much auto fiction all the way up until the part where D goes out to his car and like run and, and leaves and then everything bad happens um, because my mom, um, you know, she had bad depression you know had 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 her her problems and um she used to go to you know to the to these types of places crisis stabilization units and you know I'd go and visit her and we'd have coffee and have lunch and like color and you know do puzzles you know anything and just hang out and um she was always asking me to bring her cigarettes that was the thing so I was bringing her cigarettes and when I was there, I saw her have a seizure and it was the most frightening thing ever. And when I got home that day, I wrote out the whole day that happened, you know, the exterminator that was there that was walking around checking, like all of that stuff was true. And I, you know, I ended at the seizure part and um, you know, the quote in the, in the story is real, you know, a ship in Harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for or something like that. Like, like all of that stuff, I noted it all down and I, it took me like a year to get that story. Right. And, you know, I, I went from autofiction, I went to nonfiction to autofiction because I was like, I'm going to extend this. Like I need to push it past. I can't, my personal life wouldn't allow me to extend it in a nonfiction sense, or I didn't have the talent to do it, to push it in that way. So I went to fiction and um, Safe Harbor, which is the story I'm talking about, was never really intended to be a a D story. It was published in narrative and there was no name in, in the piece at all. Um, there was nothing that connected it to anything else. And, um, so like, that's one story where it's like, I, you know, use personal experience, um, the, uh, in a jar, for example, the jar with the corn and the hair and the teeth, that was something my sister had found. She was up, I think at the Mohawk reservation and she was dating this guy. And, uh, I think there was a woman who was jealous and she, uh, put corn and hair and teeth in a jar and put it under the steps and uh she like found it and her boyfriend like panicked and everything and like something terrible was gonna happen so I use that as like you know an element in the story so it was like picking from these interesting things and you know then 
not making it not making it about those things, but using them as either background material or vehicles to get to something deeper. Well, I was hoping you you would read a small section from a story called "Food for the Common Cold," that features Frick in a disagreement with David's mother. That I'd love to unpack with you afterwards. Food for the common cold. The snowy graveyard looked to be burning. Gray branches swayed like smoke against dark pines. The farther I got down the hard dirt path, the more I wanted the smoke to be real, wanted to see the place engulfed in flames, so the matter between mom and Frick would be settled. They'd been going at it when I left in the late afternoon. Well, they'd been going at it for five years, but that afternoon they fought about the headstone. Frick had said the graveyard needed to go, that the one and only headstone needed to be ripped out and smashed, that we needed to bring back the old way. What old way, Mom had said, and Frick tried to remember, or tried to summon some answer that sounded good, but he'd been drinking too much. He was a medicine man who had been forgetting to pray in the mornings and at night, forgetting to feed the spirits once a month. That headstone will stay forever, Mom said, and Frick looked at me, then at Mom. I wonder what will stay longer, Frick said, me or that headstone. That was what made mom run to the bathroom and cry privately. That was what made Frick get another drink. And the whole thing was what made me grab the slingshot my father had sent up for my 11th birthday. The slingshot Frick hated and called the little white boy toy. And go on down to the graveyard to shoot at the headstone, as if all our problems weren't buried cold below, but were actually right there on the surface, facing us all. The headstone was a solid mass of black granite, no engravings. It was rounded at the top like a little door, and it leaned a bit to the left, not unlike the door to our house, whose foundation had shifted over the years. For a while, I fired at that crooked headstone, the slingshot's rubber pull cracking in the cold, and I worried I'd snap it, but I had to let those balls fly. I missed maybe 10 times before I found my groove and couldn't miss, kept blasting one after the other until the metal balls were gone. I tried to find them in the snow around the headstone, but they were buried. The stone had not one dent. I made my way back home, and our house's chimney smoke coiled into the sky. Inside, Frick was still sitting at the kitchen table, face hard, his hand wrapped around the same cup of wine he'd been drinking when I left. He stared up the hallway at Mom, who came out of her bedroom. Or maybe he had been staring up that straight hallway, and he seemed to look at her only because there she was, eyes bloodshot, swollen. Mom went to the kitchen sink and started on the dishes, a few of which we'd eaten pasta and eggs off last week. What's for dinner, I said, hoping the answer could put us back together for just a moment. But before Mom could speak, Frick said, whatever you killed with that slingshot, he wouldn't look at me and stayed staring at Mom. I remember wanting to say it was just a graveyard, a headstone, but I felt it was more than that. Frick looked over his shoulder at me, looked at my empty hands. Not even a chipmunk? When he laughed, his double chin popped out, revealing his wine-red teeth. Leave him be, Mom said. A chipmunk diet would be good for you, I thought. And right as the thought smoked out of my brain, Frick rose in a way that made Mom and me look at him like he was about to take the slingshot from my hands and throw it away or commit a darker, unforgettable thing. His hair was unbraided, the way it always was when he drank in the early morning. I'm going to check on camp, he said. Mom didn't say anything while he laced up his boots. I turned on the TV in the living room. I didn't hear the back door close, but I heard his truck start and groan. 
for a while, I heard the sink still running and Frick's truck was still grumbling in place in the driveway. I wondered why he hadn't left yet. And so I looked through the living room window at the truck. Mom was standing at the driver's side window, looking sorry. Over my shoulder in the kitchen, drops of water dotted the linoleum from the sink to the open back door. Finally, with mom hanging from the window, Frick backed the truck up and yanked her along with him until mom let go and fell to the ground. On her knees, she was crying and watching him as he put the truck in drive and pulled away. And listening to Morgan Talty read from his debut collection of stories, Night of the Living Res. Part of why I wanted you to read this was because of Frick, but also because of the debate over the headstone. Um, because I feel like, and I, I want to hear your thoughts about this impression of mine, but I feel like another choice you make is to focus more on internalized colonization on the Penobscot Reservation than actually having like white character antagonists. Uh, that this headstone debate or how jealous D and his best friend Fellas feel toward the drug dealer who's getting off the res and going to medical school, or when they decide to rob the tribal museum because of how much they see a club going for on the Antiques Roadshow, which is one of the funniest moments when there's the headline in the paper, Native Man Steals History, um, that in some respects you've decided to look at colonization that's sort of been brought within um, as a matter to just get on with life. Like there's there, it, the impossible situation of living is, is involving um, some of this internalization. But I wondered if that rang true to you if, and if that was actually a conscious choice to, to um, stay with these characters uh, and the antagonism that's sort of been brought within them rather than um, having actual characters that were from outside that were, were, would be performing the same function. It was. Yeah. I, I, you know, I really wanted to, you know, I think earlier I talked about this cowboy Indian type type narrative and like, I really wanted to, I don't, I don't know if it was consciously in the beginning, I think consciously I set out, I was like, I just want to write native folk, you know, native people dealing with life, dealing with the consequences of this stuff. And when I write and revise and edit, I'm so focused on character. I'm so focused on emotion um, but I eventually get to a point where I'm like, okay, I wonder, you know, what's this saying, right? Like, like if I were a reader, you know, how might I read this passage? And so that definitely came into play, you know, like looking and, and you know, finding those ways to make sure I was still doing everything I wanted to do, you know, and, you know, and not abandoning that for some type of commentary. But I think it, it, it's something that's starting to emerge, I think, in Indigenous fiction, or I hope is emerging in, in Indigenous fiction, is this conversation about the way colonialism has forced us to treat one another, um, you know, as opposed to how we have to respond to white people, how, you know, we have to deal with imposed white, you know, restrictions. And um, I mean, I think, I don't even know if there are, there's a couple non-natives in the character. And I think the only one that really has any bearing is, is Marla, um, you know, in Night of the Living Res. Um, I'm not Night of the Living Res. Marla in The Name Means Thunder, who actually has some sort of like action in, in the story. But even then we see a, a huge contestation from the entire family toward, toward her, right? So it's like, 
even even then when we see you know a non-native coming to the scene you know to further extend you know how colonialism is working we have this huge pushback by these indigenous people being like nah we're gonna we're gonna do what we're doing even though you screwed us up <laughs> basically well one of the things that chelsea hicks remarks upon is that you both have notes at the end of your books about your use of indigenous language within your work but you both take different approaches she doesn't explain to her reader when when they encounter non-english words um, what they mean you sometimes do, and other times I think you let the context suggest what a word might mean. But one thing you go into in your note at the end is how Penobscot is traditionally an oral language, and that you put the Penobscot words in the book phonetically, not as how they're written in the Penobscot alphabet. And you do this because of your desire for it to be accessible that both Penobscot and non-Penobscot would encounter and be able to say the words the same way because we're encountering them phonetically. But I wondered if there were other factors as, as well, other than the accessible. Um, for instance, to prepare for today, I listened to some Wabanaki radio, the Donland Signals radio program. And I also listened to a really interesting interview with Carol Dana on the Mainly History podcast about her becoming a Penobscot language teacher. And she talked about the rupture around the language uh, under the rubric of kill the Indian to save the man that largely destroyed the Penobscot language and where you were punished if you spoke it. That she learned it by approaching elders, but also by hanging out with nearby tribes to hear them speak their languages. Um, and I read elsewhere that the the last fluent speaker of the dialect of Eastern Abenaki that the Penobscot spoke historically that that person died in the 1990s, but that the language is very similar to the languages of the other members of the Wabanaki Confederacy who also spoke Algonquin languages. Um, so that Carol Dana could listen to these other tribes and hear Proto-Algonquin root words from which Penobscot words were derived. She also talks about Frank Ebert, who she described as an eccentric German with questionable hygiene, who recorded Penobscot being spoken in the 1930s, and is the person who made the first Penobscot dictionary and developed the written alphabet, and who also helped Carol. And she described him as racist and sexist, and also how he could be really possessive of the language he claimed to have made. And yet she took what she could to use for her own people. But she said there were people who resisted the alphabet because of him and that the language needed to be decolonized in other ways. For instance, that notions of good and bad in the language were probably imported as there were no such value judgments. She, um, she mentions figures like Gluskabe, uh, who appears in your book, who... Um, were sometimes referred to in, in written form as a liar, which she thinks comes from Christianity rather than from the actual stories. Um, but this is my long way of wondering if it is, I mean, of course I want you to push back if I'm getting things wildly wrong, but this is also my way of wondering if it's ultimately more than accessibility to make the words phonetic. If using the phonetics isn't just about making things easier, but may actually be a more accurate way to portray the way the language both is and isn't alive today. 
for for Penobscot people to portray the presence and the absence of the language, and maybe even has something to do with the skepticism around the origins of the written language. Yeah, I mean, it was an it was for accessibility, but it was also like in his like a historical marker in a way. It's like I didn't know how to use the alphabet system, um, and so I'm, I when I first started writing, um, you know, I just spelled stuff phonetically, and I don't know if it was before I. Tin House bought the book. It was somewhere around that time, but I, for days, you know, I was thinking I, I had this difficult decision to make. I was like, do I spell these words as they are spelled with the, the alphabetic system that's used? Or do I go with the phonetic spelling that is sort of true to how I know the language? And the accessibility question kind of, it was there. And I don't think I necessarily went for it entirely to be accessible, but I think I'm thinking about a lot of Penobscot people who don't know the language, who did not grow up on the reservation, who did not take classes, who may not have been around this type of, you know, these words, you know, like the the words that appear in there. And, you know, and, and I'm pretty sure every, you know, word in there has, you know, the explanation of what it is. And, and in a way, you know, I think to not for me, and like, this was just my stance, and this is not any criticism towards any writer who cho- any indigenous writer who chooses to just put the language there and have no like definition. But for me, it was like, an opportunity, you know, like, what if, you know, a young Penobscot boy is reading this book, you know, he's 15, 16, 17. He lives in the city. He's, you know, you know, he's an enrolled member or a descendant, but he's never encountered this stuff. Like, like if I were in those shoes, I would be so, I feel like I'd be like ecstatic to be able to pronounce a word that my ancestors said and also to know what it is. And so that was another reason why I chose to go with, with the phonetic was because I didn't want to exclude, you know, people who didn't know it, people who didn't, you know, know how to say, you know, guas or does or, you know, chaguk or, you know, piggity, any, any of these words, you know, like, you know, if, if all they learn is, you know, poop and fart and shut up and sit down, you know, like, that's great. You know, like, that's like, that's reclaiming language. Yeah, it sounds like a good foundation to begin. Literally, yeah. Everybody yeah. wants to learn the bad words before <laughs> they get on to learning the other stuff. For sure. So did you, as you like um, thought about inclusion of Penobscot words, did you find yourself uh, sort of discovering more Penobscot words? Yeah, this was a, um, this, this is actually super interesting. So the person who I believe worked with Carol and... Um, some other people, I was really young at the time, uh, was a, a, a a linguist named Connor Quinn, who I think teaches at the university of Southern Maine. And he, I think he did his whole PhD around, um, the Penobscot language and he's a great guy. And he came to my reading in Portland and we were talking, he came up and we were talking and I was, and I was telling him, I was like, I found myself at times like, you know, drafting and writing and being like putting, like typing out phonetically what I thought was a Penobscot word. And I, was, and I was like, wait, I was like, is that a Penobscot word? I'm like, or am I just making that up? 
So I would email or Facebook message Carol, Dana, or Gabe Paul, who is also, um, you know, teaches the language and be like, is this how you say this? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, to my, to telling Connor, I was like, it was almost like I had buried in my subconscious, this language that like, I don't remember ever hearing BD gay, which means to come, like, come in. Like, I don't remember ever hearing that yet. I like knew it. If like, it's, it's very surreal. And he, said something to me he's like yeah he's like the language is there it's just we have to awaken it in a mm-hmm. sense um and so I did find myself like learning a lot more of the language because I would there there is a Penobscot dictionary online and so I would like type in something and I would see like root words and like different you know conjugations of verbs and stuff so you know I started sort of like teaching myself certain words and you know, I never went to it being like, oh, I'm going to throw more words in here to make it authentic, right? You know, Penobscot, you know, throwing Penobscot words in there. But um, I definitely did. It was a huge learning thing. And, you know, I think I even say in the, in the end that, you know, I have to be a better student, um, you know, wanting to, you know, learn more and, and, you, and use it more. Yeah. Well, in my, um, in my preparation, I also came across a New Yorker article called the Passamaquoddy reclaim their culture through digital repatriation. Um, and it was about recordings made by anthropologists of the Passamaquoddy, the Penobscot's neighbors in the 1890s, which were the first historical field recordings. But they were held for the next century by Harvard and lost to the tribe. That one wax cylinder had a funeral ceremony that only intended was only intended to be heard within the community, but which was made public through Harvard. And that some of the cylinders had registered facts about the Pazamaquati uh, commerce or geography that might've been helpful to, to tribal governments. Um, but also that they contained audio of people's grandmothers and grandfathers in a language that was increasingly endangered. And then eventually in the 1980s, cassette tapes were sent to the tribe and some elders were able to recognize sounds from their childhood. Um, but what's interesting for me in thinking about the setting of your book uh, is that the tapes arrive at this really important time for both the Passamaquoddy and the Penobscot because they had just successfully done an unprecedented lawsuit against the state of Maine for land seizure and the money they received to buy back land had allowed for a lot of people to return home for cultural revitalization together. Um, What was amazing to me about this, I'm I'm sure you know all of this, but I just feel like I have to share for the listeners. Um, What was amazing about the lawsuit and the settlement is that really the Wabanaki Confederacy should have should have almost two thirds of Maine, and Troy, Troyer talks about this too. The Lakota win a similar lawsuit, and the judge agrees that legally they should have this all of the land stolen back, and it's ruled that way. But it's never offered to them back. They're offered money, but in the case of the Lakota, they refuse the money, and it sits in. I think it sits in some sort of holding limbo now a suspended state but the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy take the money and and buy land Um, but it all makes me think of something you've said which gets back I think to this question of lenses and gazes and the 
question of how to get outside of a certain all-encompassing frame. And you said that it's in regards to always being asked, do you still have connections to the reservation? And how you've tried to stop seeing yourself as being different when you're on or off the reservation, when you're on Indian Island or where you are now 35 miles away, that really it all is tribal land. Um, That you're thinking of yourself being more you or more connected on Indian Island is perhaps a colonial construct itself. I, I don't know if I'm saying any of this right, but I, I would love to hear hear what this might spark for you, hearing all of this back. Yeah, I think the, uh, the word that the Supreme Court used in the Black Hills case, which is the Lakota asking for the Black Hills back, um, was a uh, transmutation. So they, you know, the action of changing, you know, something into another form, And so they, instead of giving the land back, they were like, we're going to just keep the land, but give you the value of it, which to date is like over a billion dollars in um, that the U.S. would have probably have to borrow from somewhere to give to them. And for them, it's beyond it's beyond the point. Like the point is that like the land, you know, is is that sense of identity. I I really wish I knew I can never remember the tribe whose language this language this is, but there's a word, uh, ni, I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it's N-I, and it's interchangeable. It's interchangeable. It means either the self or the land, depending on the context. So again, another example of, you know, an indigenous language where land and self are just intertwined, right? You can't escape it. And for Maine, you know, in 1980, when, you know, these treaties were found, these, the, so, so for folks who don't know, like what happened was is, in 1980, the Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, Micmac, and Maliseet in Maine were only state recognized, and they had been just treated like garbage. Garbage. And um, in 1790, Congress passed a number of um, non-intercourse acts, which were meant for basically, if you if if somebody wanted to buy land, it had to go through Congress, you couldn't make private sales from a state to a tribe. Um, And then when Maine became a state in 1820, they took over all of the stuff from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And from 1820, all the way up until whenever, you know, they were making land deals, they're doing treaties, and somebody found all these treaties in like an attic. And, um, that led to the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act because all of those treaties violated the 1790 and subsequent non-intercourse acts. And it, like you said, made two thirds of the state of Maine not a part, technically, legally, not a part of the United States. And so they were like, oh my God, you know, we got to do something and figure this out. And their, their remedy was let's give them federal recognition. Let's give them, you know, $80 million in we'll call it good. We'll call it, we'll call it even. And really, if you read the settlement act, it's, it, it's garbage. Like it just is, it, it is basically outlining how it basically just reaffirms how the, how the state treated us and how they continue to treat us. There's this, there's this line in, in, in the, in the main Indian claim settlement act that goes all bills or laws passed by Congress or, or something for the benefit of Indians will not be applicable to Maine tribes unless specified. Like that is like messed up. Mm-hmm. Like who in Congress is going to write 
you know, a bill and they'd be like, oh, we got to put the Penobscot people in there too. No, they say in, they say Indian nations, right? Federally recognized tribes. But that, but that, you know, the state has used to be like, oh, that doesn't apply, right? But then if the federal government were to be like, okay, we are, you know, giving all, we're, we're de-recognizing all tribes, the state of Maine would be like, well, nothing we can do, you know, right? Because of the provision. And, you know, the, the Settlement Act is just, it, it, it it's problematic in, in so many ways. And I could, I could go on. There's just, just so many terrible things with it. But when it comes to, you know, feeling a sense of being home, you know, for the longest time, and like this was really like recent, you know, you know, people be like, oh, do you still live on the reservation? And I'm like, like, no, I live, you know, I don't know, 30 minutes away, you know, I go there often, you know, to see my family and stuff. But then I started to realize, like, I'm still on the land my ancestors, you know, moved through. And, you know, like the reservation definitely has this big sense of home for me and I think it always will um but it's almost like I'm beginning to appreciate this land that's off the reservation that's state-owned right that has you know been reaffirmed by that Maine Settlement Act um it's it's indigenous land it's it's land that the Wabanaki people you know the first you know people of the dawn they were the first to see the sun come up um and so I do always feel a sense of home and people are always like, you're going to move away, you know, from Maine ever. And I'm like, no, like, I, I just can't, <laughs> like, I just feel too connected here. Well, you've been talked about as the first writer of contemporary Penobscot characters in fiction, who is himself a Penobscot writer writing Penobscot characters. Um, given that the number of enrolled people in the tribe is around 2000, that isn't entirely shocking that that might be the case. But I wondered if you feel the weight of that. And I also wonder if you feel any pressure from other Penobscot. What, what I'm getting at is that it feels, it seems like it's really common when there's a significant underrepresentation of a group or a significant misrepresentation of a group for the group to want to be seen in a certain way whenever they are rarely represented. For instance, this book is Tommy Orange alludes to in his Dennis Johnson comparison. It's a wash in, in drugs and theft to get drugs and clonopin and pot and methadone and alcohol and probably the Guinness Book of World Records for the number of cigarettes smoked in one book. Um, you could say, and you have, that this is a pre-existing trope um, you know, connected to the trope of the drunken Indian, as you mentioned earlier. And I could imagine if you are the first or one of the first or the only high-profile Penobscot fiction writer that people might say, hey, could you lay off on that alcohol in your stories or do you have to show or focus on that? And I just wondered if that is something that you've encountered uh, like so many people from so many other communities have encountered when when they've been foregrounded for the first time in some way yeah i uh when when burn came out i got um when burn came out in narrative magazine i got um an email from an indigenous person very upset with my choice to depict the uh doctor as being very negligent of spirit like having deep 
because in that story, D chooses methadone and then the doctor's like, well, you can't do native spiritual practice. And um, I felt bad writing that I did. And um, because the doctor on the res, he even commented, you know, we talked about it and I was like, it's not you. And I was like, you'd never do anything like that. It just was like, I think that's like one of the few moments where, I don't know, it's a very shocking moment, I think. Um, and that that's the only real backlash I got. I mean, I read the reviews on Goodreads and stuff and I see people say stuff, but like, I don't really, it doesn't bother me, but no, nobody's been like, can you not show us this way? Um, to, I mean, to be honest, most, most people, I mean, I imagine there are Penobscot people who are like probably maybe displeased with the way this is, um, I don't know, displeased with the way it's written or displeased with the way people are talking about it. You know, I was talking to a friend who was like, I'm kind of bummed about like how people are framing this book, you know, as like a Penobscot, you know, experience. And like, cause it's not like, it, it, like this is a sliver of experience an indigenous person's experience on the Penobscot nation. And like, from my own personal background, my own personal experience, like this is the stuff I experienced. This is the stuff I saw. And of course I'm going to write about it because I have a deep emotional connection to it, but I am never going to try to monopolize the Penobscot experience or try to say, Oh, this is what it means to be Penobscot. My hope is that out of those 2000 plus enrolled members, somebody else comes out with a book that's like completely counter to this one, right? Almost like this book's antithesis, right? Like that, like for me is like, cause the way I envision it is it's almost like there's this huge constellation of like stories out there. And, you know, the more stories we have, the more we have this great dialogue about what it means to be human. We get this, you know, I think of, I think of, um, anthropology's approach, you know, anthropology was always, I feel like criticized for so long about like not being a science because they, it was so hard to be objective, right? Cause everything was subjective personal notes and stuff, but they used intersubjectivity, which was, okay, well, if we get this person's viewpoint, then this person's viewpoint, then this person's viewpoint, then this person's viewpoint, we'll get a more objective picture of what it is. And that's what I hope happens. Like, that's what I want. Like, I don't want to be the only Penobscot writer you know, getting a book reviewed in the New York Times. I want several, I want a dozen. Like I want all of these stories and experiences to be told. And then your story, as you suggest, will be, will be contextualized differently as, as, uh, as among many Penobscot or stories that have Penobscot characters. Yeah. Yeah. And it can position it in conversation with these books and, and, in good ways and probably bad ways as well. Right. Like it'll bring about, you know, conversations that are hard to have, but should have, should, should be had. Well, I want to, I'm going to propose something else that might be a stretch too. And when I think of the title of your collection, the night of the living res, of course, I think of, of zombies of the living dead. Um, But thinking about how the notion of an Indian looms large in the white imaginary as sort of a static as you said, a person from long ago or a museum relic as something from the past, but something unchanging and um, not as a, not as people and communities that we live with and among that are modern and rural and everything in between that. I wonder if the title, the night of the living res is speaking to that and into that. Um, 
I'm going to bring Troyer up yet again. Hopefully you like David Troyer because I do. Yeah. (laughs) Good. Because I, uh, um, you sent me down this pathway with that, uh, with the exoticized foreknowledge. But I like when he talks about how natives are always seen as victims of history, never as actors or agents of it. And yet how there is no way an American can understand themselves without understanding the way the country has been shaped in relation to native culture and native history Um, or how his own writing was stoked by um, and sort of originated from seeing how a shooting was being reported on, on the news at Leech Lake where he grew up about this tragedy that was happening on this down and out mired in poverty, hopeless place. Um, and it was always talked about like that when it wasn't like that at all in his experience, um, that he wanted to write from a place of plenty. He says that, yes, there was plenty of poverty and plenty of structural violence, but also plenty of love and kinship and ingenuity. And then in one talk he was giving, he, was, he, he says that in 1890, there were something like 200,000 natives in the United States down from between 15 and 30 million at first contact. But now there aren't 200,000, there's 5 million. Um, And that natives were the fastest growing demographic, more natives in the United States by far than Muslims, for instance. Um, That the story was one really of return of, of hope, of being present, of being here and being alive. Um, something the rest of the country seems invested in not acknowledging. Like one thing that I, that I stumbled across in looking into Maine history was that natives couldn't vote in the state until 1967. Um, I bring this up not just because I like Troyer's take, but because it makes me think of your collection a lot, this sense of plenty, that the thing we come away with reading your book, I think has to do with plenty. Um, plenty of care between people because there's all there's tons of fights and disconnections and horrible traumatic things and impossible obstacles but it also feels like the characters sort of stick it out with each other or stick stick together i wondered maybe i'm making this up but somehow that feels connected to the living dead and the living res yeah i feel like there are a number of ways i can respond to that um i think you know, I think first it's like, I really, I'm happy that you see it that way, that you see that there's this care given even among bad situations or fighting or whatnot, you know, I'm thinking of burn, for example, where when D gets fellas home, he's like, um, he's like, I walked fellas up the steps, even though he looked fine, you know, like just that tiny little detail of him, like making sure he could get up the steps, even though he could have, right. He's still there for him. Yeah. I think, you know, the living dead, you know, I think that's what in a way, you know, non-indigenous people are kind of like used to, right. Like if you go to Google images and you type in native American, you'll see like a picture of Deb Holland and then like, maybe another contemporary person, but then the rest are like Western Plains natives, black and white or colored with headdresses on. Mm-hmm. And like, that's people's like perception or like has been people's perception. You know, this thing that is like, if you don't look this way, then you're not 
indigenous, right? Like if you don't have it, if you're not dressed up, you're, you're not indigenous. Um, and there was a, I may just be going on a tangent right now, but there was this court case, I think it was in Canada and the state or whatever it was, was arguing against the tribe saying that the tribe, the tribe's traditional rights to hunting and fishing were no longer valid because they were using modern technology. And wow. yeah, it is an absurd claim. And it's like, yeah. And it's like, I, I think the other side argued um, just the other side argued, well, if that's the case, then this judge, like this courtroom is invalid because nobody's wearing those white British wigs. You know what I mean? <laughs> that people wore in like, you know what I mean? I love that argument. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, obviously the, the, the tribe, the tribe won, I mean, because it was a ridiculous claim, but we look at zombies and zombies are this, they're the same, right? They're just, if you think of the walking dead, they all look the same. Right. Um, and, and like, that's what people know when you say zombie, they have an image for it. And, you know, I think night of the living res conjures some of that up a little bit. Right. And it's like, Oh, okay. But then everything in the book I feel is counter to that image. Like there's definitely people who are like, quote unquote, not alive in a way because they're suffering from afflictions, but they are alive nonetheless. And they are probably way outside of what you may have expected. Well, maybe this is related to this question of, of plenty that Troyer brings up, but I'm not sure. But Brandon Hobson wants me to ask you a question about how you balance sadness and humor. Um, which both feel plentiful. It does feel like we are often laughing at things that are also tragic, that we are feeling the pain of living and, and laughing within that at the same time, that the laughing and the, the balancing of sadness and humor isn't always, oh, here's the funny part, and then, and then an hour later, here's the sad part. It, to me, there's an interesting way you balance it within the same thing. I don't know how I do it per se. Um, I think I try to pay as much attention I, as I can to the emotion, but also to the emotions that may find their way into that, you know, sphere, right? If there's sadness, is there something that's going to get them laughing? You know, I think about like, I feel like everybody's experienced this in, in, in some way, you know, you know, when my mom died and my sister and I were talking and, crying we were also laughing you know and you know it was just a strange mix of medicine but both of those two things and um doing it on on the page you know when there's something sad that happens it's like you know really really trying to not create the emotion as one dimensional right it's like how can i make this sad but then how can i also make this kind of like funny in a way um, like with Fellas getting his hair frozen in the snow, like that's actually like a really sad thing, but it's also absolutely hilarious. Like, <laughs> like, like to me, it is anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just a matter of, you know, not again, coming back to this idea of symbol and going the other way. It's like, if we're going to go down the route of sadness, we also want to go the other way at the same time. Right. Like we want to see how much we can pack in there. Um, when it's called for when, when it's called for that is um because that's really like for me like that's the type of literature that makes me feel very alive 
when you were on Donland Signals Radio, uh, Wabanaki Radio, the other part of the segment was with an artist, Suzanne Greenlaw, and uh, master basket maker Gabe Frey, who wrote a children's book together called The First Blade of Sweetgrass. And they were talking as children books writers of how they noticed that native stories for children were most often about how to get along and how to share. And that Western stories were often about being first or becoming a king or a queen or being chosen. And then the host mentioned that this disconnect extended to treaties too, that treaties were seen by natives as a way to get along around resources. But how to get along, how to share how to love, even if you don't love yourself, even if the person you're trying to care for is trying to deaden something in themselves, maybe even especially then. Um, that on the one hand, if you're going to be very attentive to the real live lives of the people in this world, it is going to describe a lot of trauma, internal and external. But it does feel like the main gesture not only between your characters, but from you to them is really a sort of love and care. Um, I mean, I think back to this notion of Rick Bass with Frick saying he's going to be a great antagonist, but really he's so much more than an antagonist. And I wonder if that is something about love from Morgan Talty to the, the world that he's created. I think it definitely is. Yeah, I've always tried to, regardless of how bad somebody's been or how you know difficult somebody has been it's like something in me has always kept me there something in me has always felt like I needed to not abandon that person and it is hard right like how do how do we maintain a healthy happy loving relationship with difficult and dysfunctional people, right? I don't know. Right. All I know is that I always tried to be there and tried to stick around. And I think in this book, you know, this book is my attempt to be like, we need to somehow learn to love each other better. You know, I hope when people are done, you know, they feel that way. They're like, I can love this person more now. Mm-hmm. You know, I can care for this person more now. I can also respect the space I need in order to love and care for this right. this person now. I mean, you could you could I think describe a lot of these stories certainly not driven mostly by plot, but I think they're driven by these sorts of questions. I think it was Jim Shepard who said about when he said in the in the blurb that I read the way both separating and refusing to separate become modes of saving ourselves. To me that question of it's maybe not just saving oneself, but saving the people we care about who aren't saving themselves too. But it seems like that seems to be like the, the, the material in place of event. I would agree. I think there, you know, every story I write, there's, you know, a series obviously of events and, and, you know, like characters do something and then that spurs consequences that need reconciling. But I've always been like, for me as a writer, like I, what pulls me to the page is I feel like I'm trying to articulate something that is inarticul- inarticulable. 
I'm trying to I'm trying to unearth something about being human and to do so forces me to ask these types of questions I feel like that are never posed again right coming back to this idea of you know the stories get their power from what's left out which are those questions right they could be epistemological questions you know existential questions and you know, I think about those, you know, and, and, and I take them very seriously. And I, and I try as hard as I can to use the art of fiction, the art, you know, the principles of fiction to, to construct it. And so that those questions are there. And so I do definitely think about them. You know, I think it's, it's easy to come up with a series of events that characters have to go through and, you know, come out either winning or losing, but I think it's an entirely different thing to do that while also unearthing something that needs to be said or talked about. And I don't do it all the time. I don't successfully pull it off all the time, um, but I'm going to continue to keep trying because like, that's what I feel like is my responsibility is to, you know, get at something that we all need, you know, to fill us, you know, I get back to that, you know, to David Troyer's thing of plenty, right. You know, and, and, you know, connecting it to what Brandon, Brandon said, you know, it's almost like trying to find the plenty. Like that's what I'm trying to do is like really, really try to unearth something that is important to living. Well, I would love to have you read another section if you're open to it. Um, of course. From the story, the name means thunder. Years later, when I would visit mom on Sundays at the elder apartments on the reservation, she would tell me in this low, gentle voice she found in old age, that the boy suffered terrible seizures from methadone withdrawal, a revelation that explained his horrible screeching wails. At the time, I thought his cries were because Paige refused to hold him. She was depressed, quiet, always on the couch with her arms crossed and a cigarette smoldering in the ashtray. But no, the boy's pain was from withdrawal from the methadone his mother had taken to fend off the desire to wash down those blue pills with drink the desire to numb the memory of that terrible touch of a man's hands on her body on this planet I could not name. It's funny that at the time I knew all of that, that she was on methadone because of her using, which was because of that man who ran back to the Mohawk res. Frick chased him. But I didn't know or couldn't conceptualize how dependency transitioned from one body to the other, how all those actions had consequences. When the boy came home, Mom cared for him the most since Paige couldn't. Mom would wrap him in a small white soft blanket that the nuns had given us, along with diapers and spare towels and vouchers for the grocery store, all of which were delivered to us in an ash basket the boy slept in, the only other place besides my mother's arms where he tended to be quiet. Mom would rock and hum to him as they sat on the couch with the TV turned low and frick in the kitchen, holding and flicking an unlit smoke. And that is where we were, Mom and the boy on the couch, me on the floor watching TV, Paige sleeping in her room, and Frick pretending to smoke at the kitchen table when the first of many calls came from the hospital demanding the child's name. Paige refused to name him, and the only reason we were eventually able to take him home without a name was because Frick lied to the doctor, told him there needed to be a naming ceremony to take place on sacred ground. Maybe it wasn't a lie but I remember no ceremony taking place. And I remember one night Frick laughing about it on the phone with his brother who lived out West. Nonetheless, 
perhaps to avoid a lawsuit or to fulfill commitment to cultural sensitivity, the doctor agreed to let the boy go home after his stint in the ICU and the doses of phenobarbital that he took in the mornings. But before Frick told his lie, as the days passed with no name given, the hospital began to call and call. Next week, mom would say, we have to wait a week for the ceremony. Mom paused, listening. Because, she said, it has to do with the position of the planets. When she hung up, I asked her if she knew where Neptune was. At the bottom of the ocean, she said. The days passed, and with each call, the hospital grew more and more impatient. He needs a name, they said, or we'll name him. You can change the name when you have one. I'm curious now to know what they would have called him. Google says that a hospital will enter baby boy or baby X on the birth certificate. All I know is that they didn't name the child, but they kept calling us every day at around the same time, four in the afternoon. We knew when to expect the call, and mom would take the boy, bundle him up. The nights were getting colder, and Frick and I would follow her outdoors where we'd sit on the concrete steps and for an hour get fresh fall air. It was one of those days outside when we gave him a name, or we called him something. Frick came up with it. A small rainstorm blew through and we waited it out in the shed, mom and the baby, Frick and me. For not long, it downpoured and the green leaves flipped over and shivered their white pale green undersides while the sky lit with sharp white light and the ground below us rumbled. During it all, the boy did not cry. The storm was ending, the rain pattering gentler and gentler on the shed roof. Frick took one more puff of his smoke then held it out the open shed door under some dripping water where it hissed out and he flicked it to the earth. Badogi, he said, blowing smoke. The name means thunder in Panawapskek. And so that was the name we gave him, or the name we thought we'd use until Paige emerged from that dark place. I didn't hold Badogi too often. I usually held him when mom and Frick and I were outside on those steps, avoiding the hospital calls. Mom would hand him to me so she could have a smoke in the shed, and Frick always followed her. With Badogi born, Mom was different. She didn't smoke in the house, and she stopped drinking and began to sip tea. Frick, too, only because Mom told him or he'd have to leave, and the only place he had to go was his unfinished camp some miles north off the reservation. When I held the boy, I whispered to him, gave him hope about his mother. She'll get better, I said to him on the steps. I remember the first time I told him that. How could I not remember? It was a cool night in late September, going on 9 p.m., and I held him while Mom and Frick were in the shed, arguing about something. It was Frick wanting to go out, to drink, but she kept telling him he didn't need it. As I told the boy his mother would get better, Mom came out of the shed and asked what I had said. I told her what I said, thinking I had said something wrong, and mom took Badogi from me and said the same exact thing. Been listening to Morgan Talty read from his story collection, The Night of the Living Res. One thing I noticed when looking into the notion of ex- exoticized foreknowledge is that Troyer was looking not just at white writers, but also at native writers, including iconic canonical writers, Louise Erdrich, Leslie Marmosilko, James Welch. Um, and he argues that whether written by whites or by Indians, uh, c- cliches or inaccurate representations are sort of excused by the culture at large because they fit these preconceived notions of what Indian life is, is like or supposed to be like. And I know that other Native writers are critiquing 
native art in different ways as well. Like I think of Therese Marie Myatt, uh, her, she has a piece called, I, I cringe at what passes for native art these days, which I don't think is speaking to canonical native writers in any way, but at a more, uh, commercial level of art, but Chelsea Hicks also, um, I, I myself love Erdrick and, and Silco, and I know you, you cite Erdrick as someone you admire, but, but putting aside specific people and thinking more broadly about generations of writers, I, I feel like we've seen a big shift in Native literature, uh, that something has really changed in what is being published or perhaps in what is being written in the first place or how it's written, and I wonder if this willingness to critique, if that is a healthy part of it. Um, but I also realize that I'm not really the best person to say whether this is even happening at all. If what I perceive is really true, that something is changing, that maybe there's something different about this new wave of native fiction that's coming out now um, compared to a, a past generation. Do you, do you feel like there's a shift? And when, when, or how do you do market as, as something that's happening if you do? There's definitely a change in indigenous fiction. I, I feel indigenous writers have much more space to offer commentary. I think that would be a great essay to write, you know, to look at, you know, the whole history of, of native fiction starting, you know, in the very early 1900s. Um, I know you didn't ask this, but it's like, I would never characterize one time period as having better or weaker, you know, indigenous fiction. I, you know, it's, it's, it's all equal in my mind with the exception of maybe one writer's work. Um, but there is this shift. I feel like, you know, I think it was the critic Kenneth Lincoln who coined the term native American Renaissance when talking about Mama Day and, you know, um, and Scott Mama Day and Louise Erdrich and um, uh, Alexi and, and, um, James Welch and all these and all these other people and I and I feel like it was Alexi's work that brought us to this strange place where I feel like we may have stalled for a bit like like what native fiction was like obviously Urgic was still publishing obviously other writers were still publishing I mean when you bring that up the stalling out, like what's interesting to me is like if I were to in my sort of my, from my naive place where I would mark the beginning probably inaccurately is when Tommy Orange's book comes out and he kept saying in interview after interview, I feel like people want to put me in the place that Sherman Alexi just was, that they're looking for one writer that will always be the go-to writer for a certain type of contemporary Native American fiction. And he kept sort of horizontally, it seemed to me, holding the door open. I don't know if that's how, you, if that's your impression. I mean, his book itself and the introduction to the book, that all seems like part of it also. But I also feel like very publicly, he kept naming like sort of a force within publishing or marketing or journalism that really wanted to place him separate and above in a way that maybe um, his making that public allowed that not to happen. I don't want to give him that much power, but it felt like 
at that point in time, that didn't happen. Tommy Orange isn't, I mean, I can think of so many other names that are really um, being seen by many people. I've heard that that was sincere, that he did not want, he did not want to become the next, you know, monopolizer of this, this generation. And I mean, if you really think about it, he probably could have put out his second book already. Right. You know, and it could have got all the attention, you know, and, you know, like every other indigenous book that came out around that time or after that time was just in its shadow. You know what I mean? I'm not saying he chose to not publish a book right now, but like, I know, I feel like he just understands like from a highly intellectual point that doing that is dangerous. Like, doing like monopolizing again coming back to the danger of the single story right like having that one narrative can be so damning and you know he you know they're there for me i think his you know his his essay not essay is an essay the prologue that opens there there is kind of like this like huge i don't want to say it sparked a revolution but it it sparked a, a surge in storytelling from indigenous people that I think non-native readers didn't know that they needed and wanted you know that that book it's like I imagine the I don't know I keep imagining that cartoon where people are like putting cement on a on a block and they put it in front of them and they walk and they keep doing it like that's what I feel like his book started mm-hmm. and every and then and then like you know he's like okay here you take over and then somebody goes and then you know somebody else is like, here, you take over and you keep going. And then Tommy comes back maybe. And he's like, all right, I'm going to keep going. And you know what I mean? Like it's this ongoing effort, you know, this, this community effort to continue to support one another, to continue to elevate each other's work because we need all of those stories to create again, that true picture of who we are as indigenous people, but also who we are as human beings. As we start to come to a close, I know your next book, your your first novel explores questions of blood quantum and the question of native identity. Uh, I'm thinking back to when you're saying like when you image Google search and you see the, the plain black and white plains Indian with the native headdress. Unlike with most of your interviewers, this was something that you really grappled with with Chelsea T. Hicks and in various ways, this question of appearing native and native identity. You you talk about a story of hers where a character didn't necessarily quote unquote look native and how to signal her identity as such. And in other words, how could one perform their identity in a way that felt authentic and true um, versus the type of performance that you were definitely didn't want to do in, in your fiction for a wide audience. Um, But she connects this to questions of blood quantum also, and she says, for appearance and for blood quantum, many don't want to examine their thoughts around the topic because the current ideas benefit them. For instance, the idea of blood quantum can either benefit settlers by making indigenous people less of a problem by virtue of everyone who is less indigenous under blood quantum, or it can benefit individual natives who have a high blood quantum and so think of themselves as more native. 
Ideas like blood quantum are very attractive in a society that doesn't recognize the legitimacy of indigenous ways and choices. So my job in writing about appearance and blood quantum is to overcome the inherent resistance to the topic. To do this, I dramatized something that people do care about today, and that is signaling. I displayed the typical anxieties of signaling, body image, style, body language, onto belonging. So I guess I was hoping to use that as like a, a step toward maybe if you could talk a little bit about your interests around this question of signaling in Chelsea's book, but bringing it into questions, animating your first novel, um, the one that um, isn't out yet, uh, about which I believe has to do with these questions around the, the colonial construct of blood quantum in the first place. I just love that about Chelsea's book. Um, I mean, there are so many moments in there that it's just like, I think I said to her, I was like, you said things I have been unable to articulate for like most of my life. Um, and, you know, even in, in Night of the Living Res, you know, I thought about that too. There's that scene where D is taking Phyllis to get ECT treatments, electric convulsive therapy, and he's in the bathroom and the, and the guy's like, oh, you're from the res or whatever. And D says, he's like, I didn't know how he knew I was native, but then he realized he was wearing a shirt that said Penobscot on it or something. Um, right. So again, like, how do we signal? And, um, but with my new novel, you know, I'm really exploring this sense of belonging that comes with being on the census and, or, or having enough blood, having a quarter blood and being an enrolled member and be, con be considered by the federal government government in Indian. I mean, because I grew up on the res and I had friends whose parents had married in and they were not native at all. They were white, but they went to school with us. They sat in native studies with us. They learned the language with us, right? You know what I mean? So it's like, obviously it's a little bit different than somebody being like having a mother who's a quarter and then having a father who's not. And then the baby is not eligible to be on the census. Um, and there's all this political stuff that goes with it, you know, money, right. You know, if we up the blood quantum, then that means so many more people are now enrolled, which means there's more money that has to get, you know, you know, funding and all that stuff. So there's like, I get all of that. I do, but you know, colonialism and using blood quantum as a tool has just screwed up so many things and has created this sense of belonging. And this sort of brings me back to, you know, talking about, you know, how I'm starting to sense that even though I'm not on the reservation, I still feel like I'm at home because on the reservation, everyone knows I'm native. You know what I mean? But if I go into, you know, Danforth's and uh, just in the town over, nobody's going to know I'm, I'm Penobscot. Right. And again, it's like, how do you signal that? So with my novel, it's, it's, so far, I don't know if it'll take this turn, but it's been less about what it, it is about belonging, but it's also about the trauma that comes, you know, into the trauma that happens because of this blood quantum, because of not being an enrolled member or the fear of not being an enrolled member, because, and, and this really isn't a spoiler, um, I don't think, um, but it's, it's in the book, it, it's, it's a non-native man who grew up on the res who um, had a child with a woman who was a quarter blood 
And she lied and said that the child was another guy's, a native guy's um, child in order for her daughter, Elizabeth, to be an enrolled member of the tribe. Mm. And it's a whole story about Charles, the narrator, trying to give her this story that isn't hers. Like he's like, he couldn't live with it anymore. Um, And so it's just like this severe, I was like this, I was like, what kind of weird situation can I create from the legal system to propel a narrative forward? And, and that, and that was one of them. And it, and it's, you know, there's, it's not all about blood quantum, but it is about belonging. You know, it's about like what it means to be, I I don't want to say indigenous, but what it means to exist in a place and actually feel like you belong there. Well, I know you, have yet another book that you're working on that looks at the effects of the state child welfare practices on native peoples. But when you were on Donland Signals Radio, you talked about yet another book, a notional book, I think, that um, that you wanted to write a futuristic zombie novel 400 years from now where the indigenous peoples of Maine have reclaimed sovereignty over their land and they're living sustainably and even thriving, but they don't know what is going on outside their area. So they don't know whether the zombie apocalypse of post-collapse capitalism has subsided. So they send out a team of scouts to find out. So please tell me you haven't given up on this, this, this project, Morgan. I have not given up on this project. My, uh, I'm still jotting ideas down and and thinking about characters and and setting and um, trying to figure out the year I kind of want to set it in because like I I have to do a lot of research on sort of like degradation um, and like what degrades over time and what, you know, things might look like. And um, I'm like so excited to write this book. Like this sounds super like procrastinistic, but like, I'm so excited. Like, I don't want to do it yet. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I like I'm that. like, I just, I just <laughs> need to wait a little bit longer. Right. Um, but yeah, it is a project I have not given up on. Okay, good. Well, it was great having you on the show today, Morgan. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. It was wonderful to be here. We we're talking today to the author Morgan Talty about his short story collection, Night of the Living Res. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Morgan Talty's work can be found at morgantalty.com. For the bonus audio archive, Morgan Talty contributes a reading of The Citizen Question, an essay on blood quantum and belonging. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the community of Between the Covers listener supporters who are ensuring the future of in-depth conversations like these. Supporters help shape who to invite on the show, get resource-rich emails with each episode, And there are many other things, collectibles offered from past guests, bonus audio contributions from everyone from Morgan Talty to Laylee Longsoldier to Natalie Diaz. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, 
you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie, the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>